It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. Happy Friday night. It is Carcun Carney. I'm James Van Ostel and Carcun Carney, sponsored tonight by C&H Financial Services. Sorry, I got distracted. C&H Financial Services. I love C&H Financial Services. They offer a variety of products that range from traditional merchant accounts to a zero-cost payment processing solution, which eliminates expenses tied to accepting credit cards. C&H also offers cost-effective commercial lending programs, which can help you get your business the money it needs to make it through these unprecedented times. To learn more, contact C&H Financial Services at 855-600-2437 or go to chfs. US. I also want to thank Happy to Meet You, happytomeetyou.com, M-E-A-T, the letter U.com. This week, this is it, this week, all week long, free local delivery with my promo code JVO. Restaurant, steakhouse quality meats uh, delivered right to your front door uh, in a friendly, handsome package. I, I'm actually shocked, not shocked, I'm, I love the fact that I've gotten so many texts and pictures and messages from people who've ordered food from happy to meet you this week and have been loving it. Uh, I myself made the mother chucker tonight. This is the mother chucker hot off uh, my cast iron skillet. The mother chucker, a carefully balanced blend of prime chuck and outside skirt. It kicks ass. Happy to meet you.com. M E A T U M E A T. Of course, a homophone that all said, well, I'm going to take a bite of this and I want to make my guests feel weird. So mother chucker cheers. Happy Friday. <laughs> Wait, are we supposed to be eating? You can, if you want. Ah, whatever you feel comfortable doing. Oh, that's right. Those people right there, those wonderful human beings you're looking at, Joe Lacerdo, Christina Tillman, uh, they are filmmakers. And right out of the gate, I want to talk about your excellent documentary about the Chicago punk scene from 1977 to 1984. You weren't there. A history of Chicago punk. What is it about that period? Why was Chicago kind of ignored as the conversation nationally internationally was focused on the two coasts on what was happening in los angeles what was happening in new york why wasn't chicago in the same conversation uh i think it's just being in the midwest i think that the la and new york being the entertainment centers although chicago was an entertainment center for a while in the 50s and and 60s but i think by the 70s not a lot of labels were based here anymore Mm -hmm. so you know, I just think the Midwest is still never really considered cool by the people on the coasts, which is kind of kind of silly. We're the flyover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, some still, of, still. yeah, it, but, you know, most cool people from L.A. or New York are probably from the Midwest, you know, that just moved out there to get a career. So, Joe, you were knee deep, waist deep in the Chicago punk scene in that period. Uh, life sentence. Coolest logo ever. Life sentence. <laughs> What made you decide, I want to revisit this and spend years revisiting this and putting this out there, telling this story? Did you, was um, it the sort of thing you felt like it had to be told? I, I, it was a lot of it was the people, to be honest, like the bands that I, I knew and the people that I knew in the bands, this, they, everybody had like a pretty strong personality and, you know, like the guys in Naked Raygun and people like that were just very funny, very engaging people. So that that actually was more of a starting point 
you know, people like the Effigies and the Articles of Faith and all these other bands. And, you know, very, you know, I thought they were great bands, but uh, I used to talk about it with uh, Anthony Alarde, who was the drummer of Right to the Accused. Like, we used to talk about it all the time. I'd be like, oh, someone should do it. Someone should do it. Then I was like, ah, let's do it. What the hell? How, how hard could it be to make a movie, right? Well, and I guess that's the next question. How hard was it? Oh. It was hard. <laughs> and it took a long time. Um, but it was worth it. It was worth it. How long? Right. From from concept to getting it out there? Almost seven years. Yeah, I think we talked about doing it for three or four years before we even started. Yeah. We kept hoping someone else would do it. And then we realized <laughs> no one was going to do it. So we might as well start. Yeah. And maybe someone will finish it. But we ended up just finishing it. Yeah. I'm glad you did. It, it came out great. Thanks. Thanks. We had jobs too. Yeah, it was I mean, hard. <laughs> I was I was I had a high five records. I went in a record store and so yeah. We Listen, were, I, I understand what a side hustle is all about. I get yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like we could dedicate our full lives to the film at all times, you know. And yeah, we got you, married during it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, since you were doing it on your own, I mean, you didn't you could do it on your own timetable, right? You didn't have yeah. to answer to anybody. So exactly. it's a nice luxury of independent filmmaking. Yeah. You mentioned some of the personalities and the characters. Uh, let's start right with Steve Albini, who is just a soundbite machine. <laughs> I, he's a trip and he just he holds nothing back. If he doesn't like something or someone, he puts it out there. What, what was working with him on this movie like or interviewing oh, him? Great. I mean, that's great. Like to me that I don't have a problem with that at all. Like I'm, I, I think that's great. I think that's how people should be. <laughs> you know, to be perfectly honest. I mean, the thing is, I guess that's how people are now, I guess on the internet, but at least, you know, he's a smart, articulate guy, you know, I don't always agree with him, but, but, uh, you know, he's he's a uh, he's very funny. He's like he's got a really interesting take on things. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's he, he was a great writer, like when he wrote for Matter magazine and stuff like that. I was a big fan of his. And and, you know, he's one of those guys that has a reputation. But when I would talk to him at shows and when I was a little kid and stuff like he was always nothing but super friendly and super nice and just. You know, like all those dudes, you know, you could go up to Naked Ray Gun at a show and talk to any band member. They would always be like the nicest, coolest guys, you know, so. Articles of Faith took a little bit of a beating <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> I, well, okay. And, and let's, for people. I don't, like, it was not. <laughs> It was not my intention at all. I mean, everybody who was around back then knew that there was this Articles of Faith versus Effigies thing. And then there was this Articles of Faith versus, I knew about the Articles of Faith, faith versus the Effigies. I didn't really know about Steve Albini hating. Uh, that that was one of my biggest takeaways. I, I, I can't talk about Albini in this movie without talking about Articles of Faith and how there was a decades long <laughs> rivalry that could end in fisticuffs at some point if those two ever like oh i don't i don't think vic is like a super smart super accomplished guy i think i think he maybe you know i think he, he maybe got a little riled up but i think he was playing it up for the camera a little bit to be honest fair and for people who are watching either on Facebook or YouTube or listening to the podcast, a lot of these bands haven't 
stayed in the public consciousness uh-huh. as long as, say, Naked Reagan, whose shirt I, I'm draped in right now. So <laughs> I, I, I'm going to ask you throughout to kind of provide context for some of these bands as someone who knows these artists or as people who know these artists and who talk to them and okay. know their music intimately. Explain Articles of Faith. Uh, I loved Articles of Faith. And like Articles of Faith, to me, were like Chicago's thrashy, hardcore band that was more in step what, with what was going on in the rest of the country, you know. And, you know, Albini tries to paint that as a fault. That's his opinion. I thought they were fantastic. I mean, if you saw them live back then, they were one of the best live groups you could see. I mean, they, they were one of the first Chicago bands I ever heard of. Yeah, I mean, they kicked major ass live. They were like, I mean, it was like getting hit with like a brick wall. I mean, it was awesome. They were a really, really great live band. And, and Chicago, and they were like the band that helped out the smaller bands, as we pointed out in the film. They were the band that started the hall that did all agents shows. Yeah. So they were really important to the Chicago punk scene as we, as we, that's why, like you said, they took a beating, but I'm like, I don't know. We, we point out all the amazing things that they did for the city's punk scene. Like without them, I really don't know that the scene would have been as, as great, especially for younger bands. Totally fair. And I think I was zeroing in on the Albini part of yeah. the story. Um, a band that gets a lot of love in the movie, a lot of respect, a lot of, oh, my God, you had to see them to believe them is strike under. And yeah, yeah, this is classic showbiz. I mean, they burnt out before fading away. Yeah, that's a band whose legacy should probably probably be larger than what it is. Yeah, yeah they were great. Yeah. I never got to see them. That was a little before my time. But uh, no, they were fantastic. They were really. And I think. Yeah, I think that they're a band that probably could have gone beyond the punk, the small punk world and probably because they're just really cool guys. They're very talented musicians. They have really great, interesting tastes and in music still, you know, like Chris Bjorkman is an amazing guitar player. Yeah. Steve is just an amazing artist and they're just really, you know, artistically curious people. So it's too bad because I really, I think they would have gone on and made like a couple of really fantastic albums if they would have stayed together. But don't don't be in a band with your brother, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and, I, and I think it's great that we have footage of them in the film also. You Agreed. Know, they didn't, I don't think it was really recorded that many times. So, and that's the other thing. We just have really great footage. I love the footage you have, like the loft party footage. Like, yeah. Man, yeah. It, it's stuff that I feel like shouldn't even exist. Like, I can't believe that. Yeah, and that was the other thing when making the film. It was really hard to find this footage. A lot of people, their archives were like, like in the back of a closet, in the garage, up in the attic. Literally, yeah. And and it was really weird because when we started, there was just nothing. And then as it slowly went on, more and more started appearing. But it was like it was just hidden. It was totally hidden. What I, one of the things I found interesting about the movie is just how acrimonious the relationship was between punks and the city at large, the police, <laughs> um, the, the punk clubs. I mean, it really was punks versus the man, yeah, in this period. And I, you encapsulated like my first knowledge as a kid of Chicago punk rock was the cop coats, was the, the, the you know, the ray gun look, the, the you know, the the Chicago flag on the sleeve and 
it's mentioned in the movie just how pissed off that made the Chicago police. Like that, that was just basically like, basically like waving a flag in front of the police saying, fuck with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. 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 I think it was, I, I mean, I think it was worse, probably worse in like the seventies, like the Lemire Vipier O'Banion's scene. And then by the early eighties, I don't know if the cops cared quite as much because when I was started going to shows, I mean, every now and then a show would get, would get broken up, but the cops just looked bored. They were just like, <laughs> like they didn't want to put in any work. Like, like beating you up would have been too much work. They were just like, yeah, okay, I guess we gotta close the show down, you know. So and, they, and it was a little less shocking. They'd worn them down yeah, a little bit by the eighties. I think so too. But I think that that the earlier years, especially with Lemaire being a gay club and yeah. and having that part of the mix thrown in there, definitely. Uh, And I want to, again, provide context because some of us were not there and some of these clubs, maybe we heard the names, but a lot of us had never had the chance to go there. Uh, Lemire, this club in this club that very early on supported local punk. It it met with a a controversial demise, a a, uh, (laughs) one of several fires to end Chicago punk clubs. (laughs) <laughs> it seemed to be a theme <laughs> I, that that's another one of the memorable stories was place went up in flames and uh mm-hmm. had a history of, of not it's really funny because there's a couple there's some people that would talk off camera about it but not on camera and we we got some conflicting uh uh theories as to what happened so I don't know, like, I don't want to say I mean, because I'm not, you know, they're, they're just theories, but they're definitely conflicting. Like, so, and, you know, some people said it was the owners themselves, but other people pointed out, like, they didn't have insurance. So there was nothing for them to gain right. by letting their own club on fire. But, it, you know, in all likelihood, it, it could have been uh, someone more in a position of authority. <laughs> Authority. <laughs> I, I think it's an interesting perspective. You know, watching the movie, we do take for granted the accessibility of live music and the bands we like. We can see bands everywhere, anywhere when we're not in a horrific dystopian situation because of a pandemic. But outside of that, we can see punk at any number of places. But it was definitely a subcultural thing back then. And these clubs would pop up and it, it wasn't a given that you could go, go out with your friends and see punk rock anywhere. You had to know where to go. And as these stories are being told, uh, O'Banion's was river North, right? Uh, I think so. Wasn't it on Clark street? It, from, I, I think it was, I've never been. I'm I think not it was described sure. Yeah. I never went there either. I'm not that old. I'm not I, as people are describing, I'm thinking, oh, my God, like that area now is super touristy. And I'm oh, yeah. assuming it was kind of touristy back then, but it was described as seedy and yeah. a strip of gay bars. And that doesn't sound like that area now. It's just it's such an interesting frame of reference, because for those of us of a certain age, like we we have no no connection with this period in Chicago. It's just fascinating. Yeah, this this place would pop up in the middle of that area where, you know, up until recently, the Rainforest Cafe was. <laughs> yeah. Plus, it was still, I mean, very from what I understand, the O'Banion's area was, you know, I mean, I think O'Banion's might have been a, a gay, a gay club that was mob connected. 
in some way. And a lot of that checks all the boxes right there. Yeah, I know. But a lot of the gay clubs in that area had some kind of mob connection. I mean, you know, they're about making money. If they can make money, they're going to do it. But I think that, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like now everything is so antiseptic and, and, glossed over and clean and that's why like, when i'll see like that some kind of punk rockery person today and like they're just ever jackets like everything just looks so clean it's just like this like perfectly you know printed patch like everybody just looks so hairs like it's like i don't remember people being that put together back then you know everything was more like a freaking mess and an experiment going wrong kind of sloppy just kind of thrown together which to me is a little more you know it's a little more real a little more fun staying on the uh the club track for a little bit oz my one of my takeaways is that that was if i could go back in time and go to any of these places i'd probably want to go to oz it seemed like that was the center of everything. Yeah. <laughs> I think that Oz had definitely had its crowd. It had their own crowd because we had a lot of people that didn't like Oz. Like a lot of people from uh, the La- yeah, from the Lemaire scene and the O'Banion scene. Like I think the people that hung out at Oz were part of a specific crew. You know, because some people thought it just was like a shithole, basically. <laughs> just the, the recording the album with you know, Tim Powell, like running wires into the streets, yeah. just yeah. that kind of like furtive in under the cover of night recording an album. And just, yeah, I, right. I love, there's so many great stories in this and those stick out jumping around a little bit. I, I truly knew nothing about the beginning of this scene. So when it opens at the beginning and you're talking about, I, I knew Skafish, but uh, Tutu and the pirates completely new to my knowledge like yeah. had no what an interesting time yeah and, and the idea that punk bands were playing mothers on division street is another topic <laughs> altogether but those early days there were some legit characters one of my favorite discussions is about mentally ill uh who did the song gacy's place yeah <laughs> which i think was universally regarded in the movie as just demented and, like almost a bridge too far yeah <laughs> Plus that they were like high school kids too, which is great for <laughs> high school kids that uh, they did it at the studio. I do remember those ads. Did you grow up in Chicago? I did. Do you remember those Starbeat ads? Starbeat presents what's happening. Starbeat presents what's <laughs> happening. They recorded that record at that guy's studio. That's amazing. The I guy who did those, the guy did those ads and he sold them to the, to whatever radio station. Uh-huh. They did it at his home studio. They, and he was just like, I don't know what the hell this is. <laughs> he was recording them. <laughs> That's amazing. I want to say his name was Steve, too. Yeah, I can't. I, I'm not sure. But and it was also, I think, during like the blizzard. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and because they couldn't drive, they had to carry the drums through the snow. That's amazing. He lived a couple of like down the block or something from them. So they had to actually carry all their gear through the snow, which is very like the, the old West of hardcore punk recording or something. Uh, a couple of the bands that got a lot of love, uh, the effigies for sure. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, those, those songs. I mean, who, who doesn't love body bag? That's, <laughs> if, if there were hit records from that scene in that era, body bag is probably a top five. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have those first three records are, are fantastic. And very Chicago, very Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And it, let's talk about Raygun. When Raygun started, uh, they were kind of goofy. Like yeah. Jeff Jeff Pizzotti came out of a what was it a metal band? Yeah. And the, he had a different type of look. And yeah. They were, they were kind of perceived as arty, and it, it seemed like it seemed like maybe they didn't lock it fully in until Haggerty joined the band. Is that some people? Uh, I love Basement Screams. I mean, to me, Basement Screams is the one that really where it all starts to congeal. And that was before Haggerty was in the band. That's when mm-hmm. Santiago. Right. I mean, yeah, Santiago was still in the band. Some people claim when Santiago and Haggerty, they, there was a brief period where they both played guitar. And some people say that that was the best line. But I only think they did maybe one or two shows. I forgot who said it, and maybe it was Santiago, uh, talking about Haggerty playing sax on Basement Screams. What we learned about that, was it, was it Santiago? Uh, what we learned about that was John Haggerty's a really good guitar player. Yeah, that was yeah, that was Camilo. I think so. Camilo, yeah, <laughs> that was fantastic. I, because this is Chicago, Midwesterners we're really good at self-deprecating humor. We like to laugh at ourselves. It seems to me that Rights of the Accused was the right band at the right time. Oh yeah, yeah. They, they just took the piss out of it. Even seeing Mike McConnell in this movie, every time he was on screen, he made me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had outfit changes. <laughs> He came with outfit changes. He did. That's true. This doesn't surprise me in the least. <laughs> did you, as, having lived through much of this, did you learn stuff that you, you didn't know before about the scene? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like you, I didn't really know about uh, Lemire by Pierre. I didn't really know that much about the early scene. I mean, I Tutu and the Pirates, to me, I would see their name every now and then, like in the Illinois Entertainer or something like that. But I didn't even think they were punk. I thought they were just because of their name. I thought they were like Stevie Starlight or something like that. I thought they were like we're joke rock or something like uh-huh. that. Like I had no idea they were a punk band at all, just because of the name. You know, I thought it was like a gag. Another great Albini line from the movie. You mentioned the Illinois Entertainer. You talked about the kiss of death. Anyone who yeah. appears on the cover of Illinois Entertainer, like their career goes in. I think you said an immediate tailspin. Yes. I know, but you know what? <clears throat> it's a little unfair because when we, they, the people at the entertainer were super cool to us. They let us dig through their archives. And I was going through issues of the entertainer from 1977 and they were doing record reviews of like the saints and the Ramones and like Lydia lunch. They even, I saw like an article about Lydia lunch. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty adventurous for the Illinois entertainer in like uh, the 70s. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, so, they need a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> so what else did you learn? Um, the I also didn't really know, of, uh, like, well, I don't know if we knew about the whole gay, m- mafia gay club connection. Yeah, it was interesting to learn most of the gay clubs were MABA owned, which I, I think we just never realized. I don't know why. Yeah, and and it was interesting that most of the most of the punk clubs had been gay bars, and they had just switched over. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, as we learned in the movie, wasn't always met with great yeah. response from. Right. Yeah. Exactly. From but the they were one of the especially I guess, the clubs that would be open to this new, you know, this new music. You know, there was a lot of gay people in the early punk scene. So, were there any people who turned you down? Were there any like great white whales you couldn't land? 
Um, there was a couple people we, yeah, a couple people we tried to get. A couple people passed away, sadly. Like that, we yeah. we tried to get, and they uh, one or two people passed away. I mean, we didn't have a budget, so we couldn't really fly that much. We flew yeah. a couple of times. Uh, some people living outside of the Chicago that you know we just didn't have the money to be flying out. I mean, there's a couple early earlier people. I mean, no one. I guess we could have had Scapish a little bit more, but I feel like Scapish is such a really interesting uh, story. He almost deserves his own documentary in a weird way because his story is really, really interesting and, and kind of important yeah. to the Chicago scene. So uh, other than that. And then I think the thing for me was um, no one really knew the difference between like what was punk and what was new wave and then you know, what was the next thing? Everything was sort of murky in the early days of the scene, which was interesting to kind of, you know, hear and like, and have people talk about also. Yeah, it wasn't such a straight jacket. Because they will go, this band was punk, and then you would listen to them like, that's kind of new wave or what became known as new wave. You yeah. know, but it was- Well, that was on the down. front end. On the front, end of the front end of that is new wave versus punk. And then the, the schism between punk and hardcore. Yeah. Lines were drawn in the sand there right. on on the other side of mm-hmm. this era or yeah. the time yeah. frame. And then you had a band like Da that kind of just it completely existed in their own universe. You know, like they were part of the punk scene and almost part of the hardcore scene and kind of new wavy, but yet completely not. That was made. that was a band I hadn't heard of before the, uh, watching this movie. Yeah, they're great. They're probably the awesome. band that we get asked about the most of any of the bands in the film for that people are always, I mean, I would say, I mean, people, a lot of people know Naked Reagan and the effigies and articles of faith, but Da is the band that, that we get inquired about the most from just like outside people. Yeah. I mean, just based on watching the movie, I'm like, oh, this sounds like cool post-punk or yeah. uh, something Susie and the Banshees ask didn't feel punk in the movie, mm-hmm. but it certainly fit that whole scene and that vibe. And, it's, it's Chicago. And they, they were worked. a Dawes band too. They were Oz. one of the uh, Oz, I'm sorry. One of well, the Oz bands. Damn, so they weren't an Oz band. They considered themselves. Well, I, I don't know. What's I don't know. All right, that's a controversy <laughs> there. <laughs> so the movie's been out. It, it is streamable. And would you ever follow that up with the next ten years in movie no. form? No. <laughs> Somebody already made a film. Uh, what was it called? Shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been someone that made a film kind of about like late 80s to early 90s. I can't remember the name of it. I haven't seen it, actually. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, nah. We are hey. doing, working on a Chicago metal documentary, though. Really? Yeah. Yes. From the eighties. Oh, that's awesome! See, yeah. okay, th- th- that takes so, away one of my questions. What's next? There you okay, go. So we're still in the early stages. We don't have a name yet. We've done quite a bit of interviews. We kind of everything got thrown off schedule because of okay. COVID, yeah. obviously. Um, but it's uh, kind of it's not just about like it's more about like underground. Chicago metal, like the bands that were kind of contemporaries of Metallica and, and Megadeth and Slayer and Anthrax, you know, um, like uh, Trouble, Etro, yep. Snow White, uh, yeah. Master, Mayhem, bands like that. 
which, you know, not, you know, except for trouble, not a lot of people know. <laughs> I was going to say after, after trouble, my, my knowledge starts to. Yeah. That pretty much everyone else. Cause people are like, why are you doing this? I'm like, well, people said the same thing when we did, you weren't there. Like a lot of people didn't know those bands either, to be honest. So, you know, it, it's, um, I used to, pl- I played with several of those bands and uh, my band life sentence, like we were kind of a little more, friendly and hung out with those guys then i'd say even more than the punk and hardcore scene and i just always loved those bands and i always thought like those dudes were all like really funny really crazy and really like awesome dudes and and uh we just want i'm like i just i don't i feel like there's something there like i feel like there's a story there you know because i you know and it we, the interviews we've done so far have been pretty yeah, fucking awesome. Yeah, so I believe it. So, you know, you mentioned life sentence. It seems like if you blink, you might miss life sentence in this movie. Were you cognizant of not wanting to overstay the presence of your band in the movie you were making? Were you trying to like not have a conflict of interest? I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was just kind of like we had seen what was we'd seen a documentary. Uh, it was about Rodney Bingenheimer. Mm-hmm. The, Rodney from the DJ. And it's made, it's made by the guy in that band, Drama Rama. Drama Rama, yeah. So then there's like a 15 minute section in this movie about Drama Rama and how <laughs> great Drama Rama. And I'm like, all right, I can't, I can't have that happen. Yeah, no, you that's know? fair. I, mean, I thought we should be in there. I mean, Life Sentence, I think, technically started in 84. So we're kind of on the tail end of that anyway. So, you know. And we just wanted to touch on that hardcore, that shift to hardcore anyways in the film and not really yeah. linger on it too much. And I mean, it, and to be honest, like Life Sentence, we became bigger in the rest of the country than we did in Chicago. Like Chicago really didn't do a lot for us. They didn't really give a shit about us until like after we were broken up pretty much. So like, that's why we, you know, it's a long, complicated story as to why that's its own movie. (laughs) One of my favorite pieces of footage that you use in the movie is the Phil Donahue show. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which, oh, it's like everyone on both sides is out of central casting. Just this, what will eventually be known as Karen's talking about the, the scourge of punk rock and how it's just aberrant and destroying the cultural fabric of our society. And then the punks who have this kind of nihilistic uh, dismissive attitude toward them. It is, it, it's like a theater of the absurd watching that segment. But with heavy Chicago accents. Yes. With heavy <laughs> Chicago accents that right there, that's worth the price of admission for this movie alone. Just seeing that play out those two sides. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. One thing, I, watching the footage of Big Black, that that's the Chicago I kind of remember when I started going to shows. Like, I miss that. I miss going to, to shows, walking in a club, and then suddenly there's a band like that on a small stage. I, I there, there hasn't been enough of that in my life over the past 10 years. And for whatever reason, the, the Big Black footage just struck a chord with me. Like, that, that yeah. feels like the Chicago scene right there. Yeah. Well, you can above you and beyond punk rock. There's like ten people in the audience. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> and but it's awesome. You and nine other people enjoying this moment, and I mean, that's how it should be. I, and I, I think we we touched upon it a little bit in the film. Like Big Black, we're really not 
that popular in Chicago for a, a while. Again, I think they became big in the rest of the country and then and then they were okay. Because of Steve's, you know, a lot of the, his reputation and the articles that he would write and, you know, being a shit stir or whatever, you know. Uh, when I first learned what Jordan, Minnesota was about, I'm like, really? Oh, fuck. Okay, that's <laughs> about as dark as music gets. <laughs> wow. So again, that movie, uh, which you can stream anywhere. It's been out forever. It, not forever, but it's been out for a while. But it's, it's the kind of movie we can still talk about like it's new because this is a historical piece. It looks back on this period of time. Uh, you weren't there. A history of Chicago punk 1977 to 19, 1984. It's a period that's been largely overlooked and so many great bands bands worth digging into um i i love fgs and raygon articles of faith are cool i just what a cool time capsule thank you for taking seven years to put that together for us <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> we know it would take seven years <laughs> since uh, you are punk rock movie auteurs let's talk about the other movie because all you do is make punk rock movies at this point. <laughs> that, that, Painted myself into a corner a little bit there. That, that's just kind of your thing. Sacrificial Youth uh, oh, it yeah. is the, the punk musical, uh, which is also available for streaming and watching. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's a fun movie. It, there's a scene in the beginning, a kind of a bullying scene. Um, where the bullies are bullying the punk kids saying, didn't punk die in 1996? Like, <laughs> <laughs> But to, to that end, I mean, the, the scene and what is punk rock has gone through so many different permutations over the past few decades, and you've seen and ridden yeah. all those waves. Uh-huh. Tell me, give the elevator pitch of Sacrificial Youth. Uh, so because it took us seven years to make the documentary, I'm like, we should make a narrative film. I'm sure it'd be a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, you know, I mean, if I think too deeply about anything, I won't do anything. You know, if I was smarter, I wouldn't do anything. It's as simple as that. But so I wanted to make a musical and 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 a hardcore. Pop. I always thought you could make a music, a musical with hardcore you know, as the style. But then I kind of quickly realized that, like, it can't just be all, like, thrashy and hardcore. People are not going to be able to handle it, you know? So there's some rockish songs in there. Um, What's your elevator pitch? There's no elevator pitch. (laughs) (laughs) There's a waiting at the DMV pitch. Uh, I I like it. It's kind of raw. It, it feels kind of authentic. We didn't know what we were doing at all in any way. Like, not I, even. Someone, I guess someone needs to save the scene, right? Yes, uh, yes. The TJ TJ is modeled. On the the main character is modeled on the the archetype of the Ian McKay and the the you know Jello Biafra and Henry Rollins, this like you know Jesus Messiah punk rock singer guy. He's going to tell you the right way to do things. So it was kind of a bust on that, like joking on that thing a little bit. You know, I, I thought it was what if he actually was the second coming? Of, yeah, it, it goes to some places that are perhaps unexpected. It, it's it's a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's got some flaws, but uh, it was fun. And I, I stand by the music. Hell yes. <laughs> Hell yes. All right. So up next, you're, you're talking to metal bands from the 80s, which. I, anyone could do a documentary about 
the big bands that came out of the city, especially in the 90s and 21st century. I like that you're kind of turning over these rocks and exposing things that a lot of us aren't familiar with or we don't know in great detail what these stories are. That's cool to me. I, I like the discovery aspect of yeah, we the need stories to. you're telling. I, I think it's super cool. Because I mean, it, if the people aren't interesting, you don't have a good movie. You know, I mean, we've watched so we've watched a gazillion music documentaries and sometimes it's, they're just like watching paint dry, which is totally so agree. freaking dull. Sometimes with people you love, you know, like people, artists you love or whatever, and you're just like, I don't know what happened here. Like, you know, or they're just very workmanlike and, you know, like a, like a tutorial. Or they're too stripped down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's good to, like, we try to just be conversational with people and just be very loose. And, and it's like, they're, they're, you know, like with you weren't there too, it was just like, I knew that there was awesome people, you know, like really that's cool. it. We're a city of characters. Yeah, it's true. And it's like, if, even if it's a documentary, you still need interesting characters, you know, who can tell good stories, you know, and it, it's filled with them. Oh, well, yeah. thank you for, for joining me on a Friday night. Thank I, you. Thank I, you. I am excited to see what you, what you come up with next. I, and I, I can't recommend this enough. If you have any interest in music, in punk rock, in Chicago history, there's so much of this in the documentary. You weren't there. Just uh, I strongly recommend it to anyone watching or, or listening. Uh, for both of you, I, Christina, Joe, thank you for, uh, for doing this little podcast interview. Awesome. No, cool. no, awesome. Thank you. I will, you know, we'll come back when the other film's done and you're yeah. back in your car going to rest. Oh yeah. I'll, f I'll feed you next time for sure. Yes. 